0: Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now... Here is your host, Grace Galler.
1: Welcome to Today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler, your host. And today we have a very special guest, Professor Mark Smith, who's regarded as an international leader in tumor immunology, immunotherapy and natural killer cell NK cell biology. He received his PhD from the University of Melbourne in 1988. Since then, in recent years, Professor Smith has made key discoveries, linking NK, natural killer cells, and adaptive T-cell control of tumours, demonstrated a unique combination of pathways that can potently reject established cancers in mice. He first defined immune-mediated dormancy of cancer, He defined the role of a host in chemotherapy responses and defined adenosine and CD96 as new targets for cancer immunotherapy. A number of his discoveries have led to new clinical trials in cancer immunotherapy. In 2013, Professor Smith relocated to the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute in Brisbane, where he's a senior scientist. He's also a fellow of the NHMRC, the National Health and Medical Research Council. He's a senior editor at Cancer Research and a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Cancer Research Institute, USA. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze, Professor Mark Smith, and also today joining me, Dr. Bruce Whelan, GP, who has uh, been a guest here on Navigating the Cancer Maze before, and today will be conducting some of the interview with some very intelligent questions, we presume. So. Um, Mark, during the uh, recent Immunotherapy Week that was here in Brisbane and Immunotherapy Month that was in the USA for the June month, guests on the show have all shared their research experiences and we've heard from four different researchers in immunotherapy on the show. So today I'd just like to invite you to share your knowledge and research in your field of immunology today with our Navigating the Cancer Maze listeners. So, Mark, first of all, can you tell our listeners about your background and what intrigued or attracted you to be involved in research in immunology and cancer?
2: Yeah, sure, Grace. So, um, firstly, I um, undertook my studies at the University of Melbourne. So I grew up in, largely in Victoria, lived in Victoria most of my life, and only recently moved to Queensland. Um, and my, during my um, undergraduate years, I basically trained in science and always had a strong interest in medicine and uh, decided to undertake a PhD. And at the time, um, I joined Professor Ian McKenzie's department at Melbourne University. Now, Ian was a preeminent immunologist who trained with... um, and and clinician who who trained with George uh, Snell, who won a Nobel Prize and was particularly strong in the area of mouse immunogenetics. So I got a very good understanding of uh, mouse immunology at that time. And my PhD was really about applying what we knew about the immune system to cancer and transplantation. And I was working on uh, antibodies at that time, a particular um, ability to make antibodies specific for tumour-associated antigens or cancer antigens. And um, this was the sort of the latest craze, and at that time genetic engineering hadn't really come about and we were simply using chemistry, and I'd done a lot of chemistry in my undergraduate years. and we were coupling um, drugs and toxins to antibodies and trying to use a magic bullet type of concept Mm -hmm. where we attacked cancer. And so um, a lot of my early training was in learning mouse models of cancer and transplantation and trying to use these drug and toxin antibody conjugates. So at that time, I I got a a good feeling about those model systems and uh, developed a very keen interest in, in immunology, and that's what then led me to the Cancer Institute to do my postdoctoral studies in the US in Maryland mm-hmm. and I really engrossed myself in immunology at that time and learnt about basic immunology and natural immunity um, against infection and cancer and that developed my interest specifically in um, killer lymphocytes and that led me on to um, you know the work that I'm doing today. Uh
1: huh. Um, now, here at QIMR, Berghofer Medical Research Institute, that's always a mouthful to say um you've been working as you said in immunology cancer and infection so your lab I see currently focus upon advancing the understanding of basic principles that underlie the immune response yeah to cancer and infection so could you share with us um, your knowledge and understanding of the following kinds of cells and their processes because they're bandied around a lot in the media these days one's the role of the innate immune system and secondly could you talk about killer T cells cells, how they differ from NK cells, and uh, thirdly, NK T cells and gamma delta T cells.
2: Well, NK cells are close to my heart, so um, NK cells are part of the innate immune system. Innate essentially means early, so these are the cells that are the earliest responders to pathogens or early transformed or stressed cells. And NK cells appear to play, from a large body of literature, an important role in tumour initiation, that is the development or the early genesis of cancer in in protecting the host against that. And they also play an important role later in disease in preventing the primary tumour from spreading to distant organs, the process of metastasis. So NK cells um, don't divide very avidly, but in small numbers they're very potent cells and very cytotoxic. So they're good against what we call minimal residual disease. Uh, But by contrast, T cells or killer T cells can um, divide and proliferate and expand into large numbers. And they differ from NK cells in that they have what's called a T cell receptor, which is specific for an antigen, and that antigen is foreign to the body, so the immune system's educated in a way that it, it only selects for cells that can see foreign antigens. Mm-hmm. And cancers can carry foreign antigens through the mutate, lots of mutations that they uh, develop through the course of their history. So there are T-cells specific for, for cancer antigens, if you like. Uh, there are lots of T-cells specific for different pathogenic epitopes. Uh, And T-cells, of course, come in the billions, lots of different um, specificities. By by contrast, NK cells don't have a T-cell receptor, a specialised receptor, but by contrast, they have a lot of different receptors on their surface, some that activate the cell, some that negatively regulate the cell, and it's that balance that controls them. Mm -hmm. Now, NK T-cells and gamma-delta T-cells are... Um, Also cells of of the innate system, although they're considered to be a bit of a bridge between the innate system and the acquired system. So NKT cells um, and gamma delta T cells have T cell receptors, but they're much more um, invariant. So they tend to be against defined antigens, for example, NKT cell C, and uh, glycolipid antigens, which are not... they're, they're basically protein antigens with sugars on them as opposed to the conventional antigens that normal T cells see and these NKT cells are mainly acting in the lymphoid tissues so things like your spleen and lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gamma delta T cells tend to work at surfaces somewhat in the same way that NK cells do so they operate a lot in the um, gastrointestinal tract uh, and the skin which are very large immune organs.
1: That's a very good explanation. <laughs> I really needed to know the answer to some of those things myself. Uh, Bruce, you have a, a question this here This is actually,
3: yeah. I look after about, well, close on 100 ex-heroin addicts in a clinic. I specialise in addictions as well as in, in working with grades with cancer. And one of my patients, he'd had treatment for his hep C, because 70% of them got hep C from intravenous drug use. And... I do lymphocyte marker studies on all my patients because lymphoma is much more common amongst these people because hep C is a precursor to cancer in lots of patients. And I think quite a few die because of it. Um, and he had oh, virtually no NK cells, natural killer cells. And he gave a history of having had treatment with interferon sometime previously, which failed. But he insisted on having another course of treatment, and the gastroenterologist I referred him to, very clever guy, put him on another course of treatment, and I said to this gastroenter I don't think it's going to work, because if he hasn't got any NK cells, how, how, how is the, the killing of the, of the hep C virus going to continue on? Right. Um, so the question is, for me, how, if I have a patient who has almost no NK cells, and, or very low levels, how do I get them up? before they go and have the interferon, and there's a whole stack of new drugs where we probably won't even have to use
2: interferon. Good question. Yeah, I mean, there is, there can be quite a variation in NK cell numbers, NKT cell numbers, um, some of these innate cells, and we still don't quite understand the basis of that. Some of it might be genetic, in fact. Mm. Um, but then in situations where there are... Um, you know viral burdens or certainly in patients that have large uh, cancer burdens, you can have very suppressed levels of NK activity. So yes. NK cells can respond um, to a number of different cytokines, which are the hormones yes. that are basically yes. involved in, um, as messengers between it's immune tumor. cells. Yes. So for NK cells, things like interleukin-2, IL-15, yes. uh, IL-7, some of these factors can be used to expand uh, NK cell numbers. So a strat, or there are other strategies, for example, using what are called toll-like receptor agonists that don't work directly on NK cells but work through dendritic cells that then mm. um, talk to the NK cells and give them the growth factors that they need to expand. So mm. there are a number of different agents around um, that are used at least clinically for cancer. I, they're not approved probably for the kind of indication that you're talking about for yeah. expanding NK cell numbers, but... At least it's a ther- theoretical possibility, as uh, could, could I couldn't possibly
3: refer him to an immunologist who could possibly do something.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, a, a good clinical immunologist, I guess. Um, as I say, expanding NK cells is not something that's being done for patients really much outside the cancer sphere. Okay. So there are people that are attempting to do that um, to try and improve One's in K cell repertoire against cancer, or expanding K cells for what we call adoptive transfer or adoptive cellular therapy. Hmm. Um, but expanding in K cells, um, perhaps in diseases like HIV, it's been thought about because actually low numbers of NK cells um, is bad prognostically bad. for people with HIV. So, yeah. Yeah.
3: okay. Thank you.
1: Hmm. Um, Mark, I saw you speaking at a conference uh, shortly, Cytokines Down (laughs) Under. Sounds exciting. Um, Could you tell our listeners about cytokines? You've just mentioned them. What are they? How are they created? And what are their relevance to cancer um, immunotherapy and infections as
2: well? Well, um, cytokines are, as I say, messenger hormones between immune cells. They come in a lot of different types. Um, So there are some that are growth factors for lymphocytes. For example, we just talked about IL-2, IL-15, these types of factors. Um, There are others that act as sort of early danger signals that tend to be released by either all tissues or specialised cells like plasmacytoid dendritic cells, or dendritic cells are a type of antigen-presenting cell, but they make a lot of what are called interferons, Mm -hmm. So type 1 interferon particularly, but also type 2 interferon, which is interferon gamma. Um, These cytokines are very important in in tumour immunology. So mice, for example, that are deficient in type 1 interferon or type 2 interferon are profoundly sensitive to tumour formation. Uh, interferon is used as a therapy for some types of cancer. It's been used in melanoma, renal cell cancer, hairy cell leukaemia mm-hmm. as a therapy. Um, they tend to be fairly toxic cytokines in terms of as a therapeutic. And we're really trying to understand ways of delivering them to tumours more effectively to make them more specific. Then there are other uh, cytokines like um, of, the, of the colony stimulating factor dis- you know, discovered by one of our own here, Don Metcalf. Um, GMCSF, for example, is being used as as what we call an adjuvant to kind of uh, prime immunity against tumours. So there are some situations where it's expressed in the context of tumours and that can actually create um, an enhanced vaccine response. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you. Um, As well as cytokines, uh, you're using new antigens, including um, glycolipids and antibodies to stimulate immunity to cancer. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can you describe this research and its importance?
2: Yeah, well, the glycolipids is a very specific uh, project based around NKT cells, which I mentioned earlier, can see glycolipids in the context of a, um, a, an immune molecule or called a major histocompatibility-like molecule called CD1. So these glycolipids uh, bind the CD1 and activate NKT cells, And um, they have been given to patients now as either a soluble therapy, the soluble glycolipid, or loaded onto antigen-presenting cells that carry this CD1D molecule. It's at a very early stage, but we think that this way of using glycolipids is a great way to get dendritic cells very activated because the NKT cell and the dendritic cell talk to one another uh, very effectively through through these glycolipids and uh, essentially acting as an adjuvant so you can actually um, prime other parts of the immune system downstream. You get more activated NK cells, T cells, B cells that make more antibody. So this is, this is quite a new way of being able to actually get a stronger immune response and better memory responses. Mm-hmm. Um, antibodies, um, as I mentioned earlier, were at the time that I started doing my PhD, had been first described... That we can make antibodies initially, uh, we were making antibodies against tumour associated antigens. And so, antibodies that some of the audience might have heard about, like rituximab, which is an antibody against CD20 on lymphoma, yep. or uh, Herceptin or trastuzumab, which is an antibody against ERB2 on breast cancer. These are the sorts of antibodies that have been used therapeutically with great success. What we're seeing now, though, is a revolution where we're not targeting the cancer with the antibody, but we're targeting the immune system to then fight the cancer.
1: Right. And
2: so these are what we call the checkpoint-type antibodies, ipilimumab, um, nevolumab, the anti-PD ones that we'll talk about more. Yeah. So um, these types of antibodies are really where our focus is now. We have been doing some experiments where we've been combining antibodies one antibody that might see that a tumour antigen like a trastuzumab or herceptin-like molecule and using it in combination with other antibodies that prime the immune system. And there are some nice synergies there between those two different types of antibodies that's so offering a new type of combination therapy.
1: Fantastic. I can't believe it. We've come to the end of our first session already on navigating the cancer maze. Don't go away, folks. We'll be back shortly with more of Professor Mark Smith and the amazing immune system.
0: Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Galler Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Galler Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegahler.com or visit their website at gracegahlerinstitute.com. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's one 472 5792 International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegahler.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze.
1: Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawley, your host today, speaking with Professor Mark Smith and also with guest uh, Dr. Bruce Whelan, who's here today asking some questions as well. Uh, Mark, we were talking about um, antibodies, monoclonal antibodies. One of the ones that people would probably know the best is Avastin, uh, especially in the number of patients that I see. Um, Can you talk about the role of Avastin in terms of angiogenesis and as an anti-angiogenesis agent?
2: Yes, certainly. I mean, there's um, been a great deal of interest in talking about monoclonal antibodies that can target cancers directly at tumour-associated antigens, but also antibodies that can target the uh, blood supply which the tumours need to grow. So um, VEGF, uh, which Avastin targets, is a very good... um, example of the ability of antibodies to target a particular growth factor that stops blood vessels or the endothelial cells from growing in blood vessels that essentially starves the tumour from growing. And uh, so that type of approach has been uh, of great interest over the last decade. Um, It's probably fair to say it hasn't had as broad a applicability as we first hoped in terms of it as a strategy. But um, it certainly can be looked at as one of the things in the tumor microenvironment that's important to target. Mm-hmm. Um, we know, actually, interestingly, that a lot of the immune immune based approaches that we're attempting to introduce into the market actually rely on uh, affecting tumor vasculature. So they're not just these these uh, immune cells are not necessarily just attacking. Uh, the cancer cells they also have the ability to break down the stroma and an important part of the stroma are these blood vessels. Mm
1: -hmm. I want to ask more about that later Mm -hmm. (laughs) thanks Um, let's talk about checkpoint inhibitors Uh, I know you've got a student research project on at the moment can you tell us what is a checkpoint inhibitor you touched on it before and what is their importance in finding the answer to cancer?
2: Well, um, checkpoints are essentially negative regulators um, expressed on lymphocytes. So that's T cells, NK cells, the types of cells that we've talked about are good in terms of having an anti-tumor effect. Um, these checkpoints sit on those cells primarily to prevent auto-reactivity, or in, in the worst case, autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to—they're pre- there largely evolutionarily to stop the immune system from overreacting when it sees a virus or a bacteria. But in the context of cancer, um, these molecules also um, can be overexpressed on T-cells. And essentially, they lead to what's called the exhaustion of T-cells. So the T-cells that are found within the tumour are trying to respond to antigens that they can see that the tumour expresses. But the, the tumour um, has a trick in that it can express uh, another molecule on its surface that recognises this checkpoint.
0: Wow. and essentially
2: shuts the immune cell off. That's interesting. So the immune cells are there. They'd like to do a job, but they're being stopped by doing that by the expression of this anti, um, particular molecule on the cancer cell. So a good example is uh, the tumour expresses a molecule called pdl one a programmed death, ligand 1, mm-hmm. um, and the T cell expresses a molecule called PD-1. And so when this interaction occurs, essentially the T cell gets shut off and becomes, okay. when I say um, exhausted or dysfunctional, these T-cells don't make cytokines at the same level that they used to, and those cytokines are necessary for the anti-tumor activity. So there's a tremendous amount of interest in these, and in tumor, tumor it's called tumour-induced immune suppression. We now realise that this is one of the fundamental things that's stopping therapy from working or has been stopping therapy from working until now, and now that we've realised that, we can, we can relieve that immune suppression by using antibodies against these checkpoint molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's these types of agents that are making a big impact in cancer now.
1: And some of those are?
2: Some of them are, as I mentioned, PD-1, l either, either an antibody to the PD-1 or an antibody to the ligand, pdl one um, The PD-1 antibody is called uh, nevolumab. That's the, been the most commonly used one by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Epilumimab uh, was the first in the series, and that's against a molecule called C Clay 4. And that again has been largely pioneered by uh, Bristol Squibb.
1: Mm-hmm. And has been used in renal cancer?
2: Yeah, not only melanoma, um, where it's had probably the greatest success so far, but uh, these checkpoint inhibitors are having effects in renal cell cancer, uh, non small cell lung cancer, mm-hmm. which is tremendous because that affects a lot of people. Yep. Uh, And it hasn't seen any improvement in therapy over 40 years. So um, to see suddenly we're getting you know complete responses in about 20 to 25 percent of patients is wonderful.
1: Brilliant. Um, Mark, given that the destruction of cancer cells depends on a balance, we we touched on this before too, but I'd like you to go into a little more detail, between kill and don't kill signals, there is that fine balance between overstimulation of immunity and understimulation, and can you speak to um, this sort of connected area of autoimmunity um, and any research that you're aware of in that area?
2: Um, Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about autoimmunity because it's it's one of those things that is... Relatively species-specific, so the agents that I've just mentioned, ipilimumab and, and the anti-PD ones that have come into the clinic, we've probably um, learnt a lot actually from the patient experience, mm-hmm. particularly. So, in the animal model, there is a surrogate equivalent of CTLA4 that can be targeted in the mouse, um, but in the mouse, it's actually quite difficult to see the autoimmune effects of an antibody like right. like the ipilimumab equivalent in the mouse. But in humans, as we, when we first started to treat patients with ipilimumab, we saw that we were getting what are called immune-related adverse events, which is um, a, a, a series of um, on-tissue t- um, toxicities, including um, you know gut, gut toxicity, affecting some of the adrenal glands, these types of toxicities, um, which we've now learned can be largely managed by steroidal treatment. Uh, but there were a little, these, these symptoms and effects were a little bit um, scary, I guess, for the clinicians at first who had never used a drug like ipilimumab. Um, but it is, it is a um, type of toxicity that's going to have to be looked at with every new immunotherapy, particularly in the checkpoint class, um, and particularly as we start to use combinations of agents. So as we push for more and more cures in patients, I guess this this, um, off-target effect in terms of creating immune-related adverse events is going to to have to be looked at more and more carefully. Uh, And it it may well vary depending on the type of cancer that's being targeted as Mm -hmm. well. We have most of our experience at the moment in melanoma. Uh, We don't have as much experience in terms of these immune-related events in other types of cancers at this stage simply because we uh, haven't treated... um, haven't seen the symptoms in as many patients or haven't treated as many patients yet.
1: hmm. Bruce, did you have any questions about autoimmunity?
3: <laughs> yeah, once again, not cancer related. Another <laughs> uh, patient has chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, the, the uh, Guillain-Barré disease in later life. Uh, he's been treated with Gamminex, in doing this Gamma globulin, but having no anti immune therapy whatsoever this has been going on for several months he's not getting any better and I just wonder um, you know, with what's, what the work you're doing what you would recommend
2: yeah I don't think we have any answers at the moment um, as I said the autoimmunities that have been created by these types of agents in the cancer sphere at the moment are, are still being treated with steroids largely he hasn't had any
3: steroids at all the disease is progressing just to understand that. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Um, but I think what we're hoping to do um, is, is in, at least in preclinical experiments in animals, um, there are situations where we can actually mimic these autoimmune syndromes mm-hmm. that occur. Um, and our lab, for example, and there are others, I think, internationally as well, looking at um, animals that are carrying tumours, but we're also inducing autoimmunity in the same animals. And so, the goal is to try and find therapies in cancer that will increase the tumor immune effect but, but reduce the autoimmune effect. Yeah, yeah. And so, by using very sophisticated methods, we can knock out particular genes and proteins. And what we're hoping to be able to do is find perhaps certain pathways, um, cytokines, for example, might be one class of molecule that um, create a good anti tumor effect but don't enhance the autoimmunity or there might be we might find some agents that actually increase the autoimmune toxicity but don't enhance the anti-tumor effect yeah, right. and so we might learn something about mm. autoimmunity mm. as yeah. well as cancer yeah. and so the the kinds of things that we're learning mm. from this research might have an application in autoimmune because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, as a GP lot of patients I mean, with autoimmune no I mean very,
3: very common see <laughs> <common laughs> <very nuts>. yeah <laughs>
1: that leads into my next question, because I see several cancer patients who concurrently have something like sarcoidosis and a cancer situation or some other autoimmune disease. So in one body, we have like an an underimmune problem and an overimmune problem in different places in the body. Mm. What's going on there molecularly?
2: Yeah, look, it's complex. I mean, some some patients that get... um Some of it is coincidence. I mean, the autoimmunities are fairly common and cancer is also very common. So some people simply have those two disease settings uh, ongoing that are probably relatively independent. But there are cases where autoimmunity can lead to cancer development because autoimmunity creates an inflammatory situation. And some of those things that are generated in an inflammatory situation provoke cancer or can promote it. And the, the alternative is that there are situations, very rare cases, where cancer may predispose autoimmunity. And so what happens there, we think, there was a paper published in Science about a year ago that we commentated on, actually, that showed that um, there were um, occult cancers in patients that were creating an immune response against um, mutated Antigens that were expressed by these cancers. And these immune responses cross reacted with normal tissue and they were generating an autoimmune reaction okay. in these mm-hmm. patients. So we've known for a long time about um, uh, para, uh, the um, paraneoplastic Neoplastic syndromes. Neoplastic. And um, this is a situation where you can have tumor immunity and autoimmunity <laughs> existing in the same patient. And there's a very direct relationship between the immune system's activity on the tumor and on the host in those people.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much. We have finished another session on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We'll be back shortly with more of Professor Mark Smith. Don't go away.
0: Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides e-book resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracescholarinstitute.com or email institute at Grayscholar.com. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvung Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hulvung-clinic.com. That's h a l l. w a n g-clinic.com or call us in Germany at 4907443964240. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host Grace Galler. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegahler.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze.
1: We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Professor Mark Smith and Dr Bruce Whelan. Uh, Mark, at a recent lecture you mentioned your interface with immunity research is mainly with mice. You seem to have a good relationship with mice. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners would like to know how that mouse model of research then translates through into a, an in vivo um, human clinical trial and eventually an available treatment. Could you give us a, a kind of a short run through on how that process happens?
2: Yeah, well, generally what we do is we we, we might have a particular molecule of interest, call it X, um, and we would have some tools for molecule X, so we would have an antibody against that that blocked its function or a knockout mouse that was missing that molecule. And what we do is we essentially um, put tumours, transplantable tumours, so these are tumours that we can grow in culture, and transplant into an animal, and that creates a little tumour in the animal. And so we can grow that in a wild-type mouse or a knockout mouse or a wild-type mouse treated with that particular antibody. And we can assess what the importance of molecule X is in tumour growth by doing that comparison, and that's the simplest type of model in a mouse. And then a step up from that is to actually induce a cancer in the mouse so that it has that cancer... Uh, the cancer grows up in the mouse rather mm. than taking it from a test tube okay. and putting it into the animal you develop the cancer in the animal and that, that's a more realistic situation that's what's happening in patients and we can treat those animals then with various therapies it's a more difficult experiment to take and it takes a long time to generate tumors in animals as opposed to just transplanting them in which is much easier so that's why we do that experiment second Um, We then, if we learn something from that particular set of mouse experiments using mouse reagents, we can then try and test that principle in humans. And the simplest way to do that is to take a human culture system and try and test the relevance of molecule X. Now, that's pretty limited because generally, you know, a test tube or a culture situation is not like something happening in a living human being. Mm. So we, can, we might be able to get some answers from that, and if we get some answers from that that are encouraging, we would then move to a humanised, what's called a humanised mouse model. Now, that's a very sophisticated system where you have an immunodeficient mouse that you put a human tumour into, because the human tumour will grow in that animal, and then you can even reconstitute that animal with human immune cells from that same patient or from a different patient. And you can assess the therapy in that. Now, there are very few groups in the world doing that simply because of the technology to do those experiments and the cost and the time. If one gets good da- data from those sorts of experiments, then you've got to do safety testing in mice, obviously safety testing probably in monkeys, some mm-hmm. sort of um, uh, macaques or what's most commonly used. And then the human is the next step. And of course, there's a lot of product development to make um, you've done all your experiments with a mouse-like molecule, but you have to make it totally human to put it into human patients. Uh, that's, that's what and the you cost would go is into too. a phase that's one trial. So. A lot of cost, yeah. And the time frame you're talking about might be, you know, five to ten years from starting through to getting something into a, a human. That would be probably the quickest you could do something. That would be a phase one trial. Anyway. A phase one, yeah. Early safety mm-hmm. trial. Not mm-hmm. You're not really testing for efficacy or effectiveness of therapy at that stage. You might see something, but to get um, proper efficacy, you've got to go right through to phase three, which involves hundreds of patients as opposed to tens of mm-hmm. patients.
1: Well, thanks for explaining that because a lot of patients are so frustrated because they say, why does this take so long? Why can't we have these treatments now? And I think you've given a very good explanation of that. Thank you. Uh, Recently we had uh, Professor Jérôme Gallon. He was a guest here at uh, QIMR, Berghofer Medical Research Institute, and he spoke about his group's groundbreaking research findings in demonstrating that the adaptive immune response within a tumour was a better predictor of survival than traditional staging based on the size and spread of a tumour. Do you have any comments about that research and uh, particularly about what they've named immunoscore and what can you see as the future of that?
2: Well um, firstly, his research is absolutely world class and seminal, and uh, a lot of the work that we and others have done in animals really became essentially validated with the work that he did with human tissues. So being able to actually uh, create a score for a tumour and be able to show that that immune score was a better better predictively than the classical staging criteria was remarkable. And he showed that in colorectal cancer. Um, It's now being tested, uh, the immunoscore is being tested as a test in lots of other different types of cancers. And I think uh, once it's validated in those other, firstly in a a multi-centre way, so internationally has a program looking at lots of different centres, I'm sure he's talked about that. Yes. Um, And those those sorts of broad testing and testing it in a number of different diseases, as it gets validated in other disease settings, I think we'll see... um, You know every hospital potentially taking that on, so this would become part of routine pathology, really, to be able to screen a patient sample and get an immunoscore, and then one can use that score to decide what kind of treatment you're going to give the patient. You're going to give them an immunotherapy, or is that not going to be valuable?
1: Fantastic, Bruce. Did you have any questions around that?
2: No, just that I did pathology back in
3: 1970, a lot of histopathology, (laughs) and. Basically, it's a histological diagnosis, mainly from what I understand, of looking at the lymphocyte response to the tumour.
2: Is that right? Yeah, well, people have made observations about lymphocytes being in tumours from a very long time ago, but... What Jerome's group has done is really look at the geography of the tumour, if you like, and determine exactly where it's important to have immune cells and what Mm -hmm. type of immune Mm -hmm. cells, not looking at them broadly as lymphocytes, but using very sophisticated markers to define what kind of cells they
1: are. Mm -hmm. Um, On that uh, subject of uh, the constituents of tumours, what percentage of a tumour mass is actually composed of tumour cells? And how much is composed of stroma, for instance, or other tissue? And the second part of that question is, does that concentration of tumour cells contained in a tumour also indicate the severity of the tumour, or is that not relevant? Is it more important to what's going on immunologically in the tumour?
2: Yeah, well, it, it, the answer is it depends. So, uh, <laughs> the type of,
1: Give me both depends. <laughs> yeah, the
2: type of tumour obviously makes a big difference as to what kind of leukocyte... Uh, when I say leukocyte, I'm talking about all sorts of white blood cells are found in the, in the tumour microenvironment. So it could be as much as... Few, more than it, Some tumours have more than 50% of the cells in there are actually immune cells or leukocytes. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them tend to be macrophages. So these are the sort of uh, eating cells, if you like, antigen-presenting cells. And probably a lot of them there are trying to uh, fix up the tissue, essentially get it back to a normal state. So it's very common to find a lot of macrophages. One, there are groups of tumours that have large numbers of T cells, and this is where Jerome's work is important because he showed a particular type of T cell is very good prognostically. You know, it's called an effector memory T cell. So um, it, it's, it's probably better if a tumour has more immune cells in it, but not it, it very much depends on the type of immune cell. You know, there are certain immune cells that are in there that are bad prognostically. Okay. So it's not simply a matter of numbers. It's the quality uh, of the cell as well. So you're looking for certain types of cells being there.
1: OK, thank you for that answer. Um I'd like to ask you some questions now about circulating tumour cells. Uh, There's a lot bandied around on the web. I'm I'm involved in a few groups on circulating tumour cells, um, particularly on LinkedIn. Can you tell us about the stem cell-like quality CTCs, the ones that are able to reproduce themselves? And can you discuss the difference in the molecular and genetic information that's contained in a circulating tumour cell with stem cell-like qualities, in other words able to reproduce itself, and the information that's in the tumour tissue, how are they related and are they often dissimilar and I guess we talk about some mutations in there too.
2: Yeah, look, I have to. It's fair to say I'm not an expert in this area at all. I think it's a very interesting development, particularly in terms of diagnosis, that we can actually isolate circulating tumor cells. Cell
3: um, so, kind of in quickly. Does everybody have circulating tumor cells? Uh,
2: that's difficult to answer, <laughs> okay. to be honest. I mean, it, some tumors are not particularly metastatic, and it's mm. thought that a circulating tumor cell has, yeah, by definition, course. metastasized. 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 Yeah. Um, but it's probably a question of limits of detection. I mean, we can detect, Mm -hmm. I think, down to one circulating tumour cell in about seven and a half mils of blood or something, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, In a tumour, I think about 0.01% of the tumour mass has got the capability of metastasising. So when you look at those numbers, you would expect to see far more circulating tumour cells. So... The blood is a very hostile environment, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of cells that probably reach the circulation get destroyed. But these cells that survive in the blood, these circulating tumour cells, obviously have some unique properties, and that's what everybody's interested in trying to find out. How do they create a niche, if you like, that stops them from being eliminated by Mm. various elements of the host, including the immune system? So um, it's, it's fair to say that the the molecular and genetic information of the in the circulating tumour cell is probably quite similar to what one finds in the primary tumour. So there'd be certain mutations that the primary tumour carried that the circulating tumour cell would also manifest or show. But because that cell has escaped, there's probably some genetic changes in that circulating tumour cell that are unique, or it's a particular... Uh, highly selected cell that has left that primary tumour microenvironment. Maybe it's a cell that could survive in a hypoxic niche, for example. That means a, mm-hmm. a low oxygen uh, state. And, and that's the sort of situation where that kind of cell might have to get to in terms of circulating and surviving. So, uh, But, of course, the primary tumour mass has... A particular type of environment that we've talked about today where there's certain immune cells around now once that cell gets into the circulation it's a totally different uh scenario so they don't exist in the same kind of micro environment mm. but they may have genetic and molecular changes that are very similar
1: yep. So we've just uh, actually talked about two important aspects coming through here, is the immune system. Can it be boosted? I'm going to ask you the $64 question here. Can it be boosted by diet? (laughs) Do you have any experience of that? Because everyone's talking about, I can boost your immunity through diet and supplements. What's your opinion of that?
2: Um, I don't think... I I feel there's probably not enough uh, scientific evidence to sort of support that... Um, I think that the certainly dietary factors are very important in the in the carcinogenesis process, in the process of developing cancer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, high fat diet is is not good. There are certain types of metabolites, um, dysregulation of the insulin system, for example, yep. um, can be predisposing to cancer. So. Um, but they are factors that they are factors about intrinsic to the development of the cancer that might be quite independent from the immune system. Great. I think it's fair to say you need a healthy immune system. Um, as long as your immune system is healthy, for example, you're not stressed. You live healthily, then that probably gives you a better chance of fighting off human development. That equals a normal, healthy diet.
1: (laughs) 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 Everyone says, What's that? Okay, we've come to the end of our uh, third session now, Navigating the Cancer Maze. We'll be back shortly to conclude with Professor
0: Mark Smith. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, Please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegahler.com. Now... Back to Navigating the Cancer Maze.
1: Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Um, Mark, I'd like to ask you some questions about infections and cancer and perhaps the most recent doctor who brought attention to the likely relationship between infections and some cancer emissions is William Colley, Colley Toxin's fame. Um, His early work formed the basis of research in immunology, uh, immunotherapy today have you been influenced at all by Collie's work and that of his daughter and do you have any insights from Collie's original work that relate to any of your research?
2: Um, yeah, I've been influenced by his work, obviously being um, involved in the field. You read the history of the field and uh, I've had a long association with the Cancer Research Institute uh, and his daughter was obviously uh, very important in getting that uh, organisation um, set up and, and trying to prosper the idea of his early work and promote that. Um, certainly, his early results in sarcoma patients were quite remarkable uh, in terms of outcomes uh, in situations where infection was created. And we've seen um, the sophistication of some of that concept by uh, the development of what we are talking about before, toll-like receptor agonists. So one of these is called CPG, and that's been um, essentially these are oligonucleotides or small uh, sections of, de- of DNA that can be used to um, promote immunity against tumours. And this is one of the components probably in his toxins. And um, these agents have have been uh, tested in animals and shown to be very effective, Um, have not had so much success yet in the context of humans, but I think there's still great prospects for those type of agents to be used in the clinic now that we're starting to understand a bit more about exactly what they do Mm -hmm. and how they might... Combine with other agents,
1: Bruce. Do you have any questions around the collie's toxins? Is that new to you, no, collie's toxins? Or okay, without giving away any secrets, what's the most exciting research that you're involved in at the moment?
2: <laughs> um, well, I think uh, we in 2006 we we published a paper where we combined several different immunotherapies together, and we got very profound synergy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, additional activity by putting several pathways together, and I think that's really the most exciting thing I'm I'm finding. Um, I think recently this year there was a, a study, um, sorry, published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, where two new immunotherapies were put together with very stunning results, and so that really validated something that we had sort of initiated, you know, five or ten years ago. And uh, I think that the capability of putting pathways together and getting additional benefit is what's really exciting. And we're, we're striving to find what are the most useful pathways to put together to maximise the anti-tumour effect but minimise the side effects.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Bruce, for you as a GP, um, and talking about all this uh, immunology, immunotherapy uh, material, how, how do you see the role of GPs playing out in uh, this area, in this new area?
3: GPs actually being able to refer to oncologists who are well educated in, the, in these new areas mm-hmm. and finding oncologists who are prepared to go past the what's previously been chemotherapy, radiotherapy program, which everybody has <laughs> had so many patients say, I don't want to have that, thank you very much. And finding oncologists who are prepared to listen, talk to their patients, explain. The new areas and that sort of thing as a GP—that's the most important thing for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for you, Mark, how can that happen? That GPs could be better educated about the sort of research that, that you're doing and and uh, they're doing here at the Burghover.
2: Yeah, well, I think we're, we we are—it's a—it's a, a good example. We are actually seeing, I think, in the clinics, particularly in the bigger centres. I work just recently or for a period of time at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and there you have uh, clinicians who are really starting to embrace immunotherapy and uh, Mm immuno-oncology and they're getting a lot of their young trainees are now coming in and they're desperate to learn about immunology and immunotherapy whereas in the past that was never something that they felt they needed to do so we're seeing a transformation at that level the young medical graduates that are going in are going to become specialists uh, are getting trained, and I think what we want to see, coincidentally, then is the GPs would be getting uh, feedback from them, um, but also directly getting feedback from um, you know educational forums where this type of work can be presented. So, myself and a number of other people have presented uh, you know half day workshops and lectures and things, mm-hmm. sometimes sponsored by the drug companies, um, to just better inform um, the general medical audience about the advent of immunotherapy and where things are heading.
1: Mm. Mm. So for patients listening today who are saying, I'd like to find a trial, what is the best avenue? Because I've had some people say I went to my oncologist and written in emails in the last month and they didn't know anything about it. So is there any particular websites or has the Institute here um, got a web area where they can go to find that information? We we actually
2: refer people to the Australian New Zealand Clinical Trials Registry. Um, there's a big, long name of... Uh, the email there is... Uh, it's the website is d- www.anzctr.org.au um, and that's within Australia. And then in the US, the Cancer Research Institute has a website, www.cancerresearch.org um, and they have a clinical trial finder Uh, link to that site. So you can see mm -hmm. what are the new trials happening in the US and what are the trials in the Australian registries. Um, Of course, there are centres, as I mentioned, some of the bigger centres that are doing more innovative phase one trials like the Peter McCallum, uh, the Melanoma Institute in Sydney. Uh, This therapy is being applied quite avidly in in melanoma. So Uh there are clinicians within those Larger centres that are that vary across all this kind of therapy. So, often I guess getting a, a second opinion from them or referred from your specialist would be a good idea.
1: Okay, thanks. And the role here for QIMR Burkhoff Medical Research Institute, it's a translational medical research institute. What's translational medicine? Just could you explain that to our listeners?
2: Yeah, well, translational medicine is about taking findings of the very basic. Uh, at a laboratory level or in the sorts of experiments I've talked about today, preclinical experiments and translating them from animals into humans. So, and that translational medicine is very involved in, we've mentioned, talked about the time frames that are necessary. There are a large number of steps that have to be undertaken to take something from fundamental level right through to the clinic. Um, the translational space is that bit right in the middle. And um, it's, the, it's the most difficult area. We have scientists that are working the basic level. We have clinicians who are delivering care. But it's that translational space where, we, where there's really an effort to try and um, build more of that content. And the QIMR offer can play a very important uh, role in that space. In cancer here, for example, we have some of the strongest um, researchers in the world doing cancer genetics. Um, we have the hospital there. We have some of the best people delivering care and we really need to build up that translational space where and the, the people like me and others that are doing biology and trying to translate into the humans are, are where we can make a difference.
1: Mm-hmm. And what does Professor Mark Smith do in his other life? <laughs> what are um, your hobbies? How do you keep Well, staying? I've got family,
2: obviously, uh keeps me pretty busy. I have like, three, three boys, um, but uh, I'm a great lover of sport, so... I'm interested in all kinds of things, sport. Mm-hmm. I don't play as much sport as I used to. I wish I wasn't as busy, actually. But uh, when I did play sport, I really like uh, playing golf and, and um, enjoy following sports of all kinds. So Queensland's a good place to be with outdoors. And
1: True enough. Well, thank you. We've come to the end of navigating the Cancer Maze for today. Thanks for your time, uh, very generously given to us. And thank you, Bruce for joining us for today's Navigating the Cancer Maze and as well. Then, as an
3: aside, Pip and I went sailing yesterday afternoon.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Specialised <as> canoe.
1: <laughs> One needs to keep the balance as always, as we say to our patients. So we'll see you guys again next week on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Do have a good week and bye for now.
0: Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone.